The following interview is an episode of PTO Extra. If you'd like to get regular access to other bonus content, including listeners' questions episodes where you can put your points to recent guests, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Startup country, the world's first AI superpower, an innovation nation. Those are some of the breathless descriptions used by Israeli politicians, security officials, journalists, and business leaders to hail Israel's high tech industry and its synergy with the Israeli military, which had been instrumental in creating what appeared to be the impregnable architecture of security around the occupied Gaza Strip. But on October 7th, Israel's obsession with what my guest today, Sophia Goodfriend, describes as techno-solutionism came back to haunt the country, as Hamas succeeded in breaching the Gaza barrier at 80 different points and disabling many of Israel's automated weapons and surveillance systems. In today's episode of PTO Extra, I spoke with Sophia about her recent articles in the Baffler and Foreign Policy regarding Israel's high-tech methods of waging war and how it conducts its illegal and brutal occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. In your recent article for The Baffler, you describe how in late September, Israeli military representatives took Admiral Rob Bauer, the chair of NATO's military committee, on a tour of Israel's security architecture around Gaza, showing him the Gaza-Israel barrier, the IDF's automated weaponry and various surveillance systems. Ten days after that tour, Hamas militants launched Operation Al-Aqsa Flood and breached the Gaza fence in more than 80 places and, and then killed hundreds of Israeli soldiers and civilians. Can you describe what Bauer would have seen on that tour and what Israel's security systems around Gaza consisted of prior to October 7th? Sure. So Israel's security systems around Gaza have, since the blockade began, have been heralded as one of the world's most advanced and technologically sophisticated security and surveillance apparatus. So Bauer would have seen now in 2023 a whole different set of automated surveillance systems. This includes cameras, biometric cameras. There's sensors that go underneath the ground, aerial sensors that can sense objects moving above ground, sensors that go out into the sea to detect any sort of movement in the sea. In recent years, they've implemented automated jeeps that can patrol the territory. They have automated machine gun turrets in sniper outposts that can shoot without having any soldiers actually deployed in those towers. So what you see is this kind of military, it's really kind of the fantasy of of, um, militarism in the age of AI. It's a whole host of automated surveillance systems, automated weaponry. There's automated drones and automated drone swarms that patrol the area as well. And the actual border fence, the fence that separates the Gaza Strip from those Israeli communities in the Negev Desert, was about a $1.1 billion endeavor just because of how high-tech the systems actually are. It was a huge amount of resources. It had, I think, one military general boasted that there was enough concrete to pave a road from Israel to Bulgaria that was put into the wall. So it's an enormous, behemoth, um, massive, massive fence that's outfitted with what was really hailed as state-of-the-art surveillance systems. 
And regarding the security systems that you described there, what do you see as the chief flaws that Hamas were able to successfully exploit on October 7th? I think that, you know, we can look at certain kinds of technological failures, but a lot of the reporting that's been coming out now, and of course, it's going to be a long time until we get really like the full picture of how exactly Hamas was able to get away with what really is just an abysmal, abysmal intelligence failure on the Israeli side. It's going to be a while until we have kind of the full picture of how that happened. But I would say one thing is that there was really a lot of hubris on the Israeli side that the technological systems that they had deployed and that they had spent so much money and and years and just human power into maintaining, they bred a lot of hubris within the military. There was this kind of assumption that, you know, as long as we had these sophisticated technologies, Hamas wouldn't be able to get away with anything. Um, our surveillance apparatus over Gaza is the most vaunted and the most advanced and the most impenetrable of, of perhaps the world is what a lot of military officials had said. And so I think that that was really, really key in how everything happened. In, in the past month, there's been a lot of reporting in Israeli press and a little bit in international press about just kind of really obvious gaffes that the Israelis fell into in recent months. Like, you know, there was a concerted decision not to listen to Hamas radios in the past few months by Israel Signal Intelligence Unit, just because they assumed that, you know, they wouldn't be communicating anything important over that. And we have all of the other phone lines tapped and we have all of the other telecommunications thoroughly covered. So why should we listen to radios? There was also kind of the assumption that, okay, you know, there was reports that Hamas was doing rehearsals for this kind of invasion, this ground invasion at military bases right underneath um, Israel's nose. Like you can see the military base that Hamas was doing these practice runs at from Israeli guard towers. And people just, the military leadership just kind of assumed that nothing would happen. So that's one thing is this kind of hubris, this technological hubris that really has shaped Israeli military strategy in the past decade and a little bit more. And I'm happy to talk more about that. The other thing is Hamas had really done a lot of counterintelligence work. It had really mapped out Israel's military infrastructure across the border. So on October 7th, all that really needed to happen. And I think another thing to add is that, you know, the Israeli military relies on technological systems so much and this high tech surveillance apparatus so much that once Hamas had disabled a few key systems, they could really launch this major ground invasion without any, without very much pushback. So what they did was they dropped small explosive devices using small drones on Israeli surveillance infrastructure along the border and disabled that system. So the Israeli military was no longer able to see what was going on and communicate between, you know, watchtowers and ground troops. And with all of that disabled and sabotaged, Hamas was able to go in. So I think that's, again, kind of this over-reliance on technology. And it goes into this long-term, what people are seeing as this long-term trend of is the Israeli military really diverting resources away from ground troops and just kind of assuming that the technology would provide this easy fix to whatever sort of security situation or security threat was to emerge in Gaza. And so there wasn't much redundancy in the system, right? There wasn't a backup analog approach, so to speak, that would kick in once that high-tech approach failed. Exactly. Yeah. And you've had, I mean, within Israeli press, we've kind of seen some warnings from the upper echelons of Israel's defense community in the past few years about this, about this over-reliance on technology. 
there was a diversion of resources away from ground troops. They were having trouble recruiting people into ground troops. They had actually reduced the number of tanks on the ground. And in recent months, there's reports that they had sent a whole bunch of soldiers to the West Bank to protect a growing settler movement that's been emboldened by the new government. So there was really no sort of analog backup once these surveillance systems failed. And it's really provoking this huge kind of reckoning within the Israeli military establishment now about, you know, what have they been doing for the past 15, 20 years? Where have they been putting all of these resources? And what comes next? And is it correct to say that while Israel's approach in the occupied West Bank is also very tech intensive, there the Israelis have relied much more on their networks of informants and intelligence agents than has been in the case in in Gaza in the years since the so-called disengagement? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the West Bank and Gaza look quite differently in terms of the occupation. There are no ground troops, Israeli ground troops in Gaza. There are no checkpoints that separate certain communities from each other like there are in the West Bank. And within the West Bank, Israel has has long maintained really complex and embedded networks of informants that are really crucial to its intelligence strategy there. And in Gaza, they have informants, but there's a lot of reckoning now with just how effective they are. I mean, if if nobody was able to kind of get wind of what was happening, then how effective was that approach? And really, you know, since Israel pulled out of Gaza in the early 2000s, since then, they've kind of hailed this strategy of a quote-unquote frictionless kind of military rule with no boots on the ground, totally technological, as really the future of militarism. This goes back to why we have military officials, NATO officials, touring the Gaza border in September and seeing how amazingly effective this is. It was really hailed as kind of the future of military conflict where you don't have to deploy boots on the ground. You don't have to have these dehumanizing interactions between soldiers and Palestinian civilians like you do in the West Bank. It was really held up as the future of what military conflict and and military rule even could look like in the long run before October 7th. And do you think it might be possible that we'll see a sort of direct reversal of the direction of travel? Because there's been all this talk prior to October 7th of the so-called Gazification of the West Bank with the prospect of the territory increasingly being subject to the kinds of massive violence that Gaza has experienced. But is it possible that at least in certain respects, we may see Israel's approach in Gaza start to adopt practices more characteristic of Israeli rule in the West Bank with more reliance on human intelligence? potentially even the reimposition of Israeli settlements, something that is being pushed by elements of the religious right, and with IDF raids in Gaza becoming routinized in the way that they long have been in the West Bank? That's an excellent question. And it's really hard to know what will happen in the long term in Gaza. I mean, if Gaza is to become again like the West Bank, and you know, Israel did occupy Gaza for many, many years until they they pulled out settlers and with them the ground troops that were deployed to protect them. And so if they if they are about to embark on a long-term reoccupation of Gaza, then we'll definitely see the transfer of their military strategy in the West Bank to there. But I think, you know, it's not so unidirectional. We can see places in the West Bank already ruled kind of like Gaza in terms of like, you know, Palestinian cities can be under blockade for days or even weeks last year. They can seal off entrances in and out. They can place embargoes on, on on what gets in. And so we can kind of see the same strategies deployed in Gaza seeping into the West Bank. So it's hard to know what will actually happen. But I think what's important to note is that October 7th has really marked a turning point both in the West Bank and in Gaza. We're not going back to whatever we had before. 
For the past 10 or 15 years in the West Bank, Israel's military was also saying that they were implementing this more humane military rule. They wanted to shrink the conflict by deploying new technologies like biometrics and drones to really reduce the kinds of interactions, the dehumanizing interactions that we see between Palestinians and soldiers there. And there was this kind of shift that stood in for commitments to any sort of lasting political solution, a two-state solution, pulling out settlements, whatever whatever you, you see there. So in lieu of that, we saw this kind of turn to more technology that was being deployed in Gaza. But I think this is all kind of going out the door. And it, and it was going out the door with Benjamin Netanyahu's re-entry into power and the most right-wing government in history, taking the reins with really militant Jewish supremacist politicians controlling whole swaths of the West Bank now. But I think October 7th marks a shift away to kind of from any kind of pretense to humanitarianism as kind of the guiding rationale in Israeli military strategy. We're seeing really draconian policing in the West Bank. We're seeing soldiers shooting to kill in the West Bank. We're seeing an upsurge in settler violence that's being abetted by the military, which was happening for a while. But the scale now is unlike anything we've seen in, in a really long time. So I, I would say that this war is really a turning point across the board, both in the West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem, and within Israel. There's there's so many draconian laws being passed against Palestinian citizens of Israel and, and a huge crackdown on left-wing dissent, on any sort of, you know, pacifism calls for even a ceasefire being criminalized. So, yeah, I think it's it's a huge turning point. You've written a lot about the history of the Israeli military's turn towards high-tech security and surveillance systems, drone warfare, and more recently, the adoption of systems reliant on so-called artificial intelligence. And you date that development to the early 2000s, when perhaps prior to that point, Israel's military power had been more associated with things like the Merkava main battle tank, the Uzi submachine gun, and the audaciousness of Israel's special forces. And you write in your article for The Baffler that this unwavering faith in the potential of new technologies drew on a global zeitgeist of the 1990s and early 2000s. It was a time when venture capital-oriented technology sectors, closely tied to the military and political establishment, happily proffered technological solutions to the world's innumerable ills. Can you talk about that adoption of, of what you've termed techno-solutionism and how it was informed by military and technological trends that were developing well beyond the Middle East? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think this is kind of the analytical purchase of moving beyond the Middle East when we're trying to understand Israel's intelligence and surveillance apparatus today. What I kind of point to in that article and what I think is really important for people to understand is that Israeli military strategy is is really influenced and quite indebted to trends that were spearheaded in the United States and Silicon Valley. So in the early 2000s, we have the birth of what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, a time when major technology conglomerates were gaining power and developing really potent new surveillance technologies that really outstripped anything that major militaries had developed. So in the United States, you saw this kind of unprecedented collaboration between technology giants and burgeoning homeland security states that were really eager for more power and more potent technologies in the aftermath of 9-11. And so that's a history that's that's highly commented on in the United States and that many people have kind of written about is this blurred line between Silicon Valley and the United States surveillance apparatus. What we see is also in Israel and, and many other countries around the world, this kind of eagerness to, to apply this strategy. So Israel, as most people will know, is a huge, it gets a ton, millions of dollars of U.S. military aid. 
It's always engaging in technology transfers and joint trainings with the U.S. military, but it also really learned from this new form of tech collaboration between Silicon Valley and the United States security state. So in the early 2000s, Israeli military generals began trying to transform intelligence units to operate more like startups. So I'll kind of, I'll go back and say, you know, these vaunted intelligence units that people might be familiar with in Israel, units like 8200, in the 1990s, they were really small. They were quite insignificant. Um, nobody knew what they were called. They had very few soldiers. And within 10 years, they swelled to contain more soldiers than the Israeli Navy. And this was part of a real concerted effort by Israel's military establishment to remodel its intelligence apparatus to operate more like a technology conglomerate, to make them into innovation labs rather than just, you know, parts of military bureaucracies. And central to this kind of rebrand and this and this shift in military strategy was the thought that new technologies could really stand in for past strategies as promises of regional peace were really fading. The early 2000s was also on the heels of the 1990s, which in Israel and Palestine was an era when people, there was, there was more talk of regional peace. And we can debate how, how rooted those, those talks were and actual changes that were going to come about. But there was a kind of an opening and a kind of hope that there would be a different sort of political horizon that was, that was coming closer. And that really faded. And the shift to surveillance and security states and homeland security infrastructure happened in tandem with those fading visions of peace, an upsurge in regional violence amidst the Second Intifada, and this kind of brace, embrace of new technologies as something that could stand in for any sort of lasting political solution, for any sort of commitment to two-state solutions or pulling out settlements or whatever, whatever you want. And we can always debate the, you know, how effective any of those promises or commitments would have been. But I think that it's really important that we can't see the expansion of Israel's surveillance apparatus outside of these global trends and this global from the United States to Western Europe, this embrace of new technologies as really making warfare and the expansion of homeland security more humane and more efficient. So I think kind of telling those two stories side by side is really important. How significant do you see Israel's arms industry? And after all, Israel is a major arms exporter. How important do you see that in terms of reinforcing the, the hubris and the, and the complacency that you describe? That outside of Israel, the Israeli military was seen as uh, very technologically advanced and one of the strongest militaries in, in the world. And there was this adoption of systems that had been road tested, so to speak, in the occupied territories. How important do you think that was in creating this, this path dependency where, where every problem is responded to? with a, a very technologized solution? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that it's really, really important. I think that it's hard to kind of separate for any sort of military strategy anywhere in the world, the kind of profit motives of today's military industrial complex from what's happening on the ground. And so I think this is, we have a really good example of that with kind of all of the AI hype that we've seen in the past few years. Immediately, as soon as, you know, ChatGPT was unveiled and people were heralding AI, I mean, obviously, this was happening for a long time, but it kind of took off in the past year as the future of literally every sector and would revolutionize anything from warfare to healthcare to what have you. Israel immediately said that it was on the brink of becoming an AI superpower and was churning out press releases about how its security services and its military was using AI in these revolutionary ways. In 2021, you know, the military said that it had waged the world's first AI war during an 11-day bombardment on Gaza. 
bragging about AI-powered drone swarms that they used to take out targets and saying that AI had given it, you know, unparalleled efficiency and had made its operations easier and quicker to carry out. So we, we see these kinds of claims that mirror a global technology industry a lot. And I think it's really hard to kind of separate the imperatives of this VC-oriented tech sector that's really bent on making money and appeasing investors and getting more people to buy into the promises of new technologies from military strategy. And I don't think Israel is exceptional in that sense. I think that that's a problem that we see all over the world. But what we saw on October 7th was really just how hollow those claims are. I mean, if Israel was on the brink of becoming an AI superpower, and if this technology made its military apparatus omnipotent and highly efficient, then how could such an abysmal um, intelligence failure come about? And how could, you know, 1,400 people be left to be brutally slaughtered by the Hamas militants who came in? I mean, I think that, you know, just the scale of destruction that Israel has been has witnessed on October 7th and is still reeling from today really calls into questions a lot of the bragging strategies and a lot of the kind of empty claims of this military industrial complex that's really tightly tied to, again, the profit motives of a global technology industry. Do you think the likely response is, is going to be that, okay, our technology failed on October 7th, but it's it's more a question of, of, of execution? Or do you anticipate a quite major change in Israel's military doctrine away from that highly technologized approach, especially given that prior to Hamas's attacks, there were already security and military officials arguing that Israel's obsession with advanced technology was hampering their ability to conduct more conventional military operations such as combined arms offensives and and so on? Right. So I think October 7th is going to, it already is and, and will continue to lead to a pretty dramatic change in Israeli military strategy. And that's to say, you know, as you mentioned, this this intelligence failure is really provoking this reckoning with with past kind of overinvestments in technology and in artificial intelligence in particular. So on the one hand, we're we're seeing a lot in the upper echelons of Israel's military apparatus, you know, saying we need to pour money into ground troops, we need to bring in more tanks, we need to kind of reverse the past decade and and more worth of policies that really took investments and humans and capital away from ground troops. So there's kind of a pushback against the past few years of AI hype in that sense. On the other hand, we're also seeing a kind of reversal of past claims that all of these investments in new technologies will make Israeli operations more precise and more humane. So as we can see from the just massive amount of destruction that's being caused in Gaza, the the just huge casualties, uh, the majority of which are women and children, any kind of prior claims to precision bombing and a kind of more humanitarian military intervention that have, have seemed to kind of go out the window. There's a complete emphasis right now on just causing as much destruction as possible. Um, in the early days of the war, that was to quote unquote, you know, clear the the ground for the ground troops to come in and to destroy as much as uh, as much as um, Hamas's underground infrastructure as possible. But it also is just a complete reversal of prior claims and in, in the most recent wars on Gaza that the Israeli military has made. And we can contest, you know, how accurate those have been in the past, too. But they've really put this emphasis on, you know, precision drone strikes and as much intelligence as possible was making its assaults on Gaza humane by, you know, reducing the number of civilian casualties. They're not making those claims anymore. And we can 
see with, you know, upwards of 12,000 casualties so far, again, the majority of which are women and children, that they don't seem to be attempting to make anything more precise at the moment. So I think those two things, this kind of reversal of an emphasis on precision warfare and technologically advanced assaults and pouring resources into to ground troops and really more emphasis on analog warfare. Those are the kind of two big trends that we can see taking place now and that I think will will follow into the future. In one of your articles, you wrote that already one Israeli publication has said the next phase of war will be a proving ground for some of Israel's latest military technology. But what we've seen in Gaza so far has primarily been an extraordinarily violent attack on the civilian population and, and, and infrastructure, as you, as you describe, which, if one was being generous, could be described as indiscriminate, but is perhaps more accurately being termed genocidal by many analysts and, and human rights commentators. Do you think the situation in Gaza really can be a shop window for Israel's weapon systems in this case, since it's hard to see what the strictly military lessons are of, of, of massacring civilian populations? Or do you think that the military relevance may become more apparent as the IDF and Hamas start to engage each other more directly? So any kind of military invasion, any war is always an opportunity for militaries and private the companies that they work with to sell weapons, unfortunately. So although we can see the October 7th attacks and all that's kind of come after that is a huge failure of Israel's quite vaunted and high-tech military apparatus, I don't think it's really a question that its military industrial complex will, will try to capitalize as any other military would on the latest assault. I mean, already you see Israeli publications talking about, you know, the AI incorporated into tanks and new missile defense systems rolled out and how the military is using algorithms to cull through vast amounts of surveillance data and pinpoint targets, even though those kinds of claims to efficiency really fly in the face, as you say, of the mass destruction we're seeing on the ground. But again, I think that, you know, Israel's military, like most militaries in the world, is really bound up in a private technology sector, in a private weapons industry. And all of those players are going to try to capitalize on this war as they've done with the war between Russia and Ukraine and most other military conflicts in the world. So unfortunately, I don't think it's going to put a big dent in Israel's weapons industry and the private tech companies that it works with as well. You recently wrote a blog post about the situation and, and social atmosphere in Tel Aviv, where you're currently based. Could you say something a, a little bit about the mood in the city, which in, in the article you describe as uh, being uh, commonly known as the bubble and as a place which feels very distant from uh, both Gaza and, and, and the West Bank? Sure. So for years, Tel Aviv has been kind of held up as, again, this this bubble, this city that's really cleaved off from the constraints of Israeli occupation in the West Bank and its blockade on Gaza because of advanced weapon systems, um, high-tech checkpoints, and smart border walls that really keep the constraints of occupation out of sight and out of mind for many Jewish Israelis. You know, it's been variously called the Miami of the Middle East, the most hedonistic city in the world. It's a city that's really defined by its booming tech industry, which is closely tied to its military apparatus, but that's often elided in, in popular accounts of it. So it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. It has been. And that kind of sense of Tel Aviv's isolation from regional conflict and warfare was shattered on October 7th. I mean, on multiple fronts, 
because of the failure of Israel's vaunted military apparatus, you know, you can really feel this heightened sense of security, this heightened sense of, of, of danger and fear. Not to mention that the massacres that took place on October 7th were experienced as a huge national trauma for so many Israelis who know people who have family members who were kidnapped or, or killed in their homes. And that really can't be understated. But I, and also the fact that 400,000 reservists have now been called up for military duty and are being deployed in a war that seems to just continue with, with really no end in sight, no really end game that's being articulated by political leaders and, and no real timeline that anybody can grasp onto. And so with all of that, and with there are still um, missiles being launched by Hamas into Israel on a daily basis. So the article really just gets at this feeling of war that has been quite absent from the Israeli every day for for many decades now, probably since the second Intifada in the early 2000s. And it's it's trying to just index that that stark contrast. And I think it's also important to note that I don't think that, you know, Israeli society is ever going to be the same after this. And I think that, you know, however long this war takes the kind of crackdown on leftist dissent, the securitization and the militarization of an already quite militarized society will continue in full force. So that's what I was trying to to index in that piece. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO and finding it useful, please do consider rating or reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Mm